I want to talk about the Jesus movement and Black Lives Matter this morning. I realise that for some people, this comparison is a non-starter. Black Lives Matter and the Jesus movement. The doubters might say, how can a movement so invested in a single issue be godly? Indeed, as important as an issue as racial justice is, it does not compete with the totality of the gospel. Other people might not be so kind and suggest, like our Home Secretary, that any group advocating disobedience or civil disturbance is disgusting. The response to these criticisms and to answer the question much depends on what we understand by a godly movement. Now, let me be clear here. What I am defining as a godly movement does not mean that it's Christian or run by Christians, but that it shares attributes of the Christian tradition and consequently sheds light on what it means to be Christian here and now. To consider if Black Lives Matter is a godly movement and consequently what it means for us as Christians today, we need a measure or a standard for evaluating social movements. New Testament scholars suggest that Jesus outlines his movement's mission in the Lord's Prayer. It contains what his movement stands for. So if the Lord's Prayer is the standard for the characteristics of a godly movement, then let us explore how in the content, it's a godly movement, it's contents of the Jesus movement, let's explore how it connects with Black Lives Matter. Now, this comparison is not so far-fetched when we remind ourselves that one of the founding members of Black Lives Matter is an evangelical Christian. And all of the founding members have various entanglements with Christianity. I believe that the points of overlap that we're going to see between the Jesus movement and Black Lives Matter are recognition of of the deep Christian roots, roots in social justice traditions in Western culture. And where there are points of disconnect, I suggest it's an opportunity for us as people of faith to reflect on our spirituality. So let's start then with what the Jesus movement stands for. There we go. We often forget that the Lord's Prayer is not a one-off. Its repetition in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Luke suggests that it was to be repeated, something that you said more than once, and its repetition serves as a mantra, a way to remind the early church of what they stood stood for. So I'm really sorry for those of you who think that this prayer is something we say before or after meals or at bedtime. It wasn't meant to be used that way. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is a manifesto. What the Jesus movement was supposed to believe in and stand for And theologians who interpret the Lord's Prayer this way identify five points or commitments that make up Jesus's manifesto. So let's work our way through them and then compare them with the Black Lives Matter movement. Well, the first commitment is our father. This describes a God who is a God for all. 
our Father in heaven is a statement about the inclusivity of God. And note that Jesus departs from the age-old tradition here of, appeal, of appealing to patriarchal norm, norm, the patriarchal normativity of the Hebrew Bible by only acknowledging the great men of the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to connect God's people to God. Instead, what Jesus does is present an image of a God who is a God for all. A God for all has its theological roots in God's love of all creation and the plan of salvation to redeem everything. In contemporary Christianity, we practice the expanse of God's love as inclusivity to show that all are welcome in the house of God. And, and some theologians would argue that to be church is to be radically inclusive, above and beyond what the world expects us to be. The commitment of a God for all has resonance with the inclusivity of the Black Lives Matter movement, seeking to go beyond the patriarchal leadership of the civil rights movement and its heteronormativity. They declare themselves committed to the inclusion of all of God's children, no matter what shade, colour or type. In some respects, they went, like in the parable of the Great Feast, into the highways and the byways of political activism to seek out those who had been, pre who had been previously rejected in social justice movements. So the first commitment is that God is a God for all. The second commitment is hallowing the name of God. Now, this is a strange concept because God's word was already, name was already holy. So why would Jesus demand that it is to be revered? Well, this is where Jesus again challenges the status quo. You see, in the first century Judea, only Caesar's name was allowed to be hallowed. And in John's gospel, we know that the religious leaders, after they um, declare that they're against Jesus, remind him that they have no God but Caesar. So Jesus, by professing God before Caesar, is going up against the Roman authorities here and confronting their idolatry. But how but to hallow the name of God is also to demand justice. You see, at the end of Leviticus 22, the hallowing of God's name is linked to the, the Hebrews' liberation from Egypt. So God's holiness is also a call for justice. So what is Jesus calling for justice on in the Lord's Prayer? Well, if we take this viewpoint, then Jesus' second commitment is God's impending justice on the first century Roman or, uh, regime. From the work of first century historians, we know that Roman rule was harsh and oppressive. Like all colonial regimes, it was based on suppression and extraction of goods. We often miss Rome's brutality in the way that we read the New Testament. We forget that Jesus was a colonized Jew and that Roman rule across the ancient world was destructive. The African-American dean, the great dean of liberation, of black liberation theology, James Cohn, seeks to remind us of the brutality of Roman oppression by asking us to compare the relationship between the cross and the lynching tree. We get further insight in the Jewish imagination, the brutality of Rome, when we consider the meaning of Jesus's exorcisms. In New Testament scholarship, exorcism is on one level a a symbol for Roman power. Exorcism symbolizes Rome as the demon that must be cast out of Israel's body. In fact, the whole story of legion 
in Mark 5 is a prime example of colonial oppression as a destructive force. Black Lives Matter also condemns, also calls for justice. I'm just catching up with my screen now, if you bear with me. There we go. Black Lives Matter also condemn oppressive states and call for judgment. Intriguingly, their analysis of oppression, that is critical race theory, has identification with the idea of demonic oppression. This is because both presuppose the presence of pre-existing destructive forces that will destroy us all if they are left unchecked. For Black Lives Matter, it is the idolatry of white supremacy that is the demon to be exercised from our contemporary body politic. So what about the third and fourth commitment in Jesus's manifesto and this standard then by which we should judge all uh, movements? The third and fourth commitment of Jesus' manifesto as part of Jesus' movement uh, concerned the distribution of resources, bread and debts. We know that bread was a staple of the ancient world. Uh, the noun Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And Jesus' call for bread was vital because hunger and starvation were present, were, were, were realities within the region. The New Testament stories of the sheep and the goats, the parable of the great banquet and the Beatitudes all signal real material poverty and hunger in the land. And note here that Jesus is not just calling for charity. You see, the repetition of day and daily is a way of saying, give more than what is due. It's like the difference between minimum wage and a living wage. What Jesus is calling for here is, is a living wage in terms of daily bread. And the third commitment is about sharing resources. Again, Black Lives Matter call for a redistribution of wealth on a national and international scale. And fortunately, a vision of global social justice in this day and age is labelled as socialist or communist as opposed to being Christian and part of Jesus's manifesto. The penultimate commitment concerns debt. The Greek word for debt is the subject of some debate here in terms of what it's really meant to mean. But what scholars agree on is that Jesus is referring to both financial and non-financial debt. And we know that debt was a regular feature. Financial debt was a regular feature of the first century truth. Remember the story of the unforgiving servant, for example. And historians uh, tell us that most of ancient Judea were subsistence farmers who scraped out a meagre existence. Many had to go in debt to service basic needs, such as paying for sacrifices at the temple or servicing Roman taxation. The interest rates at the temple would put Wonga to shame. A commitment to debt cancellation then was a way of halting poverty and challenge and a challenge to the severe indebtedness of the people. So think back to Leviticus again and the traditions of the Jubilee and the, the sab sabbatical. We can see that Jesus is drawing upon this rich history in the Bible of challenging economic in the, injustice. Intriguingly, financial restructuring is also a part of the Black Lives Matter movement also who call for debt relief for poor countries and better economic practices within host countries. The last commitment then is lead us not into temptation. And this is on the service, another strange request. This is because 
we know the Bible tells us that God is not a tempter of persons. So what is the real danger here? What is Jesus, Jesus trying to warn the disciples against? Well, again, the scholarship suggests that the real danger is complicity or compromise. As we used to say in my old town of Coventry, the cop-out. Giving up or giving in because it's convenient or expedient. And this last point would have meant a lot to the disciples because this was Jesus asking them to stick to the task no matter what. And we know that for many of them, adhering to this, this demand cost them everything, including their lives. Intriguingly, there is no similar demand in the Black Lives Matter movement, although members and associations have taken risks. Uh, to protest and highlight racial injustice. So just to recap then, the Jesus movement's goals in the Lord's Prayer calls for a commitment to a God for all, justice and the redistribution of resources, freedom from corrupt economic systems, and for believers, the strength to follow no matter what. If we accept that Black Lives Matter shares some of the goals of the Jesus movement expressed in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' manifesto, then what can we learn from this conversation? Well, I think there are three key takeaways for us as Christian people this morning. The first one is that the church has been slow to understand the history of racism and its collusion with it. And what is required in response is educational, understanding the history of of racism and Christianity. As I always say to my students, most of the books written on this subject are by historians, not not theologians. Theologians still need to catch up and do this kind of scholarly work. The second takeaway is to understand how whiteness works in the world. Black Lives Matter were not the first to identify this issue. It was actually a British academic back in the 1980s, a former colleague of mine, Richard Dyer, who first coined the term whiteness studies. And if we want to go back even further, then we can go back to the great African-American sociologist at the turn of the 20th century, the great W.E.B. Du Bois, who in 1907 told his white colleagues at Harvard University that they need to do their work over to think about the way in which white skin colour privilege impacts on their their work. The second way takeaway here is the need to dismantle whiteness both inside and outside of the church. Uh, Another colleague of mine, uh, somebody a mentor, uh, uh, Ben Lindsay, has written a book about this for the church, why the church needs to talk about uh, uh, um, race. And he wrote it in response to Reno Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Uh, although she really is, uh, the book is a title, has been a contradiction. What she wants people racialized as white to do is understand how whiteness works as a social location invested with particular privileges and how these impact how people racialized as white navigate space and time and understanding that. So in conclusion, I think we should be, oops, let me go. In conclusion, I think we should be inspired by the fact that when Christian people have taken seriously in history, education that is inclusive and dismantled white power structures, then it's led always 
to revolutionary change. Just take the example from the last century, the last time the church embraced these issues and the great strides that were made with the civil rights movement. Black Lives Matter, the Jesus movement. I think we can learn from each other and the church can be enriched by learning from Black Lives Matter. Thank you.